from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name's Mark Mayette. I'm currently serving as elder here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. Join me in our call to worship. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me from life, from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Come, let us worship the risen Lord. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to Psalm 30, which can be found on page 478 in the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my, fo my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought, me up, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but, is for, is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made, my, I made supplication. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off of my sackcloth and, and clothed me with joy, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks for you to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 to 20. You can find it on page 119 of your pew Bible. Listen with me again for a word from God. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that is the early followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they had heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and the kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother, Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Rob uh, immediately intimidated me when I first met him with, uh, with tattoos marking much of his six-foot-two frame. I never thought this heavy metal guitarist would become a Presbyterian nor did I ever think that he would become one of my closest friends. At points, Rob's story is, is very familiar to us, very typical. He grew up in a nominally religious home. In this case, it was Roman Catholic. Didn't think much of God, nor did he think God thought much of him. What was atypical for most Presbyterians, really most Christians I had met up until this point in time, was the radical conversion that Rob had experienced. Carrie, Rob's wife, grew up in a Presbyterian home, but Rob showed very little interest in the faith. He would say that he was spiritual but not religious. He was more of an open agnostic than anything else. 
I mentioned that Rob was a heavy metal guitarist. He played in a band that had a pretty decent domestic and international following. On the band's European tours, in fact, they would open for acts like Metallica. That's unfamiliar to you. You can Google it. And it wasn't uncommon for them uh, to play in front of tens of thousands of people. His was the rock and roll life. Well, midway through one of those European tours, a tour that would have him away from his wife and his friends for a good chunk of time, Rob had an experience with God. It was as if God was actually talking to him, not in an audible way, but in that still, small voice way, right into his inner core. God was speaking to him. God was leading him, saying to him that it was time to quit the band and to go back home. Now, music was his life. To give this up would compromise the very core of his identity, and yet he had this deep sense as he encountered God, he had this deep sense that this was exactly what God was calling him to do. On the tour bus en route to the, the next show, Rob called his bandmates together. He said, guys, I love you, but this is going to be my last tour. He tried to explain, he tried to find the words to, to describe this encounter with God, but to no avail. The lead singer was so angered by Rob's decision that he immediately called for the band to vote, and that night they voted indeed, they voted to kick him out that very evening. He was off the tour, he was out of the band, he was going to have to find his own way home. He hitchhiked from Budapest, Hungary to Frankfurt, Germany to catch a flight. He did a lot of thinking, and for the first time, he would tell you he did a lot of praying. God had not only become real to him, but God was directing him and leading him, and Rob was, for the very first time in his life, actually listening actually attentive to what God was doing. Well, today, Rob and Carrie and their two children have a deep and authentic faith, and he still gets the chance from time to time to rock out in his church's worship band on Sunday mornings. Uh, conversion stories uh, come in many shapes and sizes. Like Rob's, some are abrupt. They are completely unexpected. Others have more nuance, don't they? More subtlety. Many aren't all at once in this one big moment. Instead, they are continuous. They are perpetual. They are long-lasting. There is a continual conversion that takes place. Some conversion stories experience interruption only do to be picked up again at a later date. Now the word itself, conversion, doesn't get a lot of airtime in certain congregations. I'm not sure if we're one of those congregations, but in certain congregations, the word conversion doesn't get a lot of play. The term for many 
has too much baggage, too much pain, and frankly, too much unchristian behavior attached to it. In some eras, in some contexts, conversion was a tool of oppression. It was a tool of colonialization and a tool uh, to maintain cultural hegemony and the status quo. In some contexts, conversion meant to subjugate people under the power of the church on behalf of the state. And in still other contexts, it meant replacing the cultural, economic, and social habits and convictions of indigenous groups of people, typically replacing it with the, the Eurocentric worldview of the evangelizers. History is replete with stories of forced conversions and crusades that had more to do with power and greed than it did with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even so, even so, with that dark history in many places, I believe this word, conversion, needs to be and remain a part of our vocabulary of faith. I'm reminded of what the great Methodist pastor, E. Stanley Jones, once wrote. He said this, In conversion, you're not attached primarily to an order, nor to an institution, nor a movement, nor a set of beliefs, nor a code of action. You are attached primarily to a person. To a person. I believe conversion is deemed Christian when one turns their life toward and over to a person. Conversion is Christian when one turns their life toward Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. To be a converted Christian then does not mean one is converted to a denomination or converted to a church or converted to a particular theological or political or nationalistic or social worldview, to be a converted Christian means to turn toward Jesus, to know him and to live like him and to live for him in the world. And isn't that precisely what Saul eventually does? He is the prototypical Christian convert. He is a Christian convert. On that road to Damascus, his encounter is not with a religious institution. It's not with political or cultural powers. No, Saul's encounter is with a person. Is with a person. The risen Christ. He encounters this one who's been raised from the dead. And Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, commits his life to him. Now, friends, I believe uh, that the most prominent religious desire of the human heart, the most prominent religious desire of the human heart is not knowledge or morality or ethics or even doctrinal certainty, but I believe the most prominent religious desire of the human heart is for an encounter with God. An encounter with God to experience the real presence of the living God. In her book, The Preaching Life, Barbara Brown Taylor tells of a time when she was serving a church as their Christian education coordinator. People in that congregation would often uh, say to her how much they wanted Bible study. They want more Bible. They want more theological education. 
And, and being the coordinator, she would plan accordingly. She would, she would hire great professors. She would put together these great courses. If it was Bible that the people wanted, Bible was what the people were going to get. And so she put all this together and she, she'd go great lengths at advertising these wonderful studies and these wonderful classes. And then when the time would come to have these classes and to have these studies, very few people would show up. But then she would ask after the class would end, the, the larger congregation, well, what is it that you want? And they'd say, we want more Bible. We, we want more theological education. And so... If you want more Bible, I'm going to give you more Bible. And so she, she gave them more Bible. She gave them more education. She gave them more classes. And sure enough, as the next set of studies and classes came to be, the attendance was about the same. She finally figured it out. This is what she wrote. I got the message. Bible was code for God. People were not hungry for information. They were hungry for an experience of God, and Bible was the only word they had to talk about it because the Bible as they saw it was the story of people encountering God in a real way. Bible was code for God. What they longed for was not information. What they longed for was God in God's very self. But as my friend Rob will tell you, encounters with God are not always pleasant, are they? In fact, encounters with God will radically change your life. Saul, if he was here, would tell us the same thing. This religious zealot, this Greek educated, this Roman citizen, this Pharisee, the, the one with special permission, he had the papers, to travel from the city of Jerusalem to Damascus to bind up, literally to arrest and bring back wayward Jews, Jews who had become part of the way of Jesus Christ, that he could go there, arrest them, and bring them back and put them on trial in front of the chief priests. This one... This one named Saul on this road to Damascus was blinded by a light so bright that it knocked him to the ground and he heard a voice, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responded, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are Persecuting. The writer tells us that Saul was blinded and needed help to get to Damascus. So incapacitated was he that his comrades needed to, according to Luke, lead him by the hand into the city. This great and strong and vicious Saul was leveled by his encounter with the risen Christ. An encounter with God may knock you off your feet. An encounter with God may make you vulnerable and dependent upon others. An encounter with God may bring a sharp-edged conviction into your life to let you know that something is wrong. Paul's physical blindness serves 
as a metaphor for his spiritual blindness. He thinks he sees clearly. He thinks he gets it. He thinks he sees the will of God in the persecution of Christians when in actuality he is blind and cannot see what God really wants in and for his life. An encounter with God exposes his blind spots and will do the same for us. An encounter with God will not leave you or me the same. For this man, the encounter brought a change in his name from Saul to Paul. An encounter with God moved him from the role of a persecutor of Christians to actually being one, one who is a Christian and one who is persecuted. This encounter moved him from a life of violence to a ministry of reconciliation. Saul's encounter with God changes everything. It does not leave him the same. And friends, this is one of the great paradoxes of our faith. I mean, isn't it? We, we, we long for an encounter with God. We long for that encounter. We long for the real presence of God in our lives. But we're also hesitant. We're hesitant to open ourselves up to God, to an experience of God, because we have a hunch that the consequences of such an encounter may expose our blindness and call us to see our lives and God's role in them in a fundamentally different way. There's a well-traveled preacher's story of a minister who went to call on one of his parishioners. She was living in a retirement community. The woman had uh, become wheelchair-bound six months prior, and the doctors gave her very little hope that her legs would ever function the way they once had. After making small talk for, for about 10 minutes, the, the minister asked, in a very sincere way, how can I be praying for you? The woman said, Pastor, I, I'd like you to pray that God heals me. I'd like you to pray that God gives me the ability to walk again. This minister was a bitter man. He was quite cynical, and he thought to himself, oh, great, another irrational and foolish prayer from the flock. There's no way she's ever walking again. Still, he nodded. Somehow he conjured up the words so they at least sounded like they were sincere. And he prayed, Lord, if it be your will, allow Mrs. Smith the ability to walk once again. Amen. At that moment, and before the minister's incredulous eyes, Mrs. Smith started to squirm in her wheelchair. She put her, her hands on the sidebar. She pushed herself up and, and stood on her feet. She took two steps forward and she cried out, my God, my God, I'm healed. Her friends hear her shouts of joy. They come down from the rooms on the hall. The nurses and aides come in and they begin to dance in disbelief. The minister quietly exits the room, begins to head to his car. He looks up to the heavens and says, God, don't ever do that to me again. <laughs> you 
See, some of us have become very comfortable and content with the expectations we have created for God. We don't want an encounter with God because it is liable to blow up our expectations of how God works, our expectations of what God wants, or our expectations of what God is willing to actually do. Part of me believes that this reluctance is also about recognizing that if God is doing something over there and I know it to be so, then God maybe want to do something right here. You follow me? If God's doing something over there, maybe God wants to do it right here for me. If God is willing to make a woman dance again and to bring her joy, might God want to do the same for me? I wonder if some of these questions or feelings were ones that Ananias experienced. Ananias is a, is a convert to Christ, a disciple living in Damascus, and Ananias has, a, has his own encounter with God. He, he hears a voice from God. God called him to get up and go to the house of Judas on a street called Straight to meet a man named Saul who had a vision that another man named Ananias might come to him and touch him and, and heal him so that Saul might see once more. Now it's obvious by Luke's writing that Ananias knows who Saul is, at least by reputation, in the most comical moment of the text. This is funny. Ananias feels the need to let God know who Saul is. As if God doesn't already know this one named Saul. God, this Saul is not a good dude. In fact, his deeds are evil, and Ananias feels compelled to remind God that, that Saul is actually persecuting Christians whenever and wherever he gets a chance to do so. But God has already made up God's mind and says to Ananias, go because this Saul is the instrument I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles. I imagine Ananias thinking or maybe even praying back, not recorded in Luke of course, but, 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 but saying seriously? This guy? Probably in a Philly accent. This guy? Saul, this one, are you sure? Begs the question, maybe Ananias thought, well, if God's willing to do something radical in that guy's life, imagine what God might want to do in my life. But Ananias is obedient and faithful. And becomes for us an example of the ministry of the church. Right, he is the archetype of the church. God says go, and he goes. We're called to be witnesses of the good news of resurrection. Notice that it's not Ananias' job to convert Saul. You know that, right? It's not his job to convert Saul. God does the converting. It's Ananias' job to go to Saul, to call him. Did you hear what he called him? Brother. He called him brother. To listen to him, to touch him, to embrace him, to bring him close, to proclaim and to heal, like Ananias, I believe God sends us, First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, to people to whom God is calling us to, even those we have deemed to be outside of God's redemptive grace because we have 
discovered that there is no such place as outside of God's redemptive grace. We make ourselves available to listen to others and their stories of how God is encountering them in their life right now. We reach out and we embrace, we hold people close to let them know that they're not alone in this world. We pray for them. We bring healing. And we expect that these encounters with God, as it was for Rob and Saul and Mrs. Smith and Ananias, that these encounters will turn us into witnesses to the truth that Jesus Christ is alive. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may it be so. And all of God pe God's people say, amen.